Hi, everybody. For a variety of reasons, we've had trouble finding a secure feed for subscribers. But we now have one, and it tells us exactly how many people are listening to us. So please, if you would, subscribe to our feed. There are links on our webpage and on our Facebook page. Thanks very much. Here's the show. Welcome to the fourth part of Coherence, the ongoing uh, environmental studies podcast series. Hi there, Hi listeners. there listeners. Welcome, Welcome to, to Coherence. Coherence. <laughs> My name is Amanda DiBattista. And I'm Andrew Mark. Next stop, York University Commons. Our thanks to Niche for funding this pilot series and to Nature's Past for hosting us. Each episode will showcase thoughts from the York University Faculty of Environmental Studies describing the intersection of culture and environment. In October of 2011, Andrew and I took our mics to the Gladstone Hotel in downtown Toronto for a conference. That conference, entitled Green Words, Green Worlds, Environmental Literatures and Politics in Canada, brought together poets, scholars, writers, and environmental activists to talk about the importance of literary works and creative writing for an engaged eco-political practice. We collected over five hours of recorded material and have distilled it down to an hour and a half for this two-part installment of Coherence. Our aim is not to summarize the conference. That seems both redundant and impossible. Rather, the goal of this episode is to give you, the listener, an opportunity to consider the relationship between literature and environmental thought using some of the conversations that came out of this conference as a jumping-off point. We sat down with Kate Sandilands. My name is Kate Sandilands. And Ella Soper. I'm Ella Soper. The conference organizers, a few weeks after the event, and asked them to talk about green words, green worlds. We've used our conversation with Ella and Kate as a framework for this episode. We will frequently bring excerpts from the conference into this discussion, juxtaposing bits from the keynote, plenary, and panel presentations with our interview with Kate and Ella. In this way, we hope to begin to explore the questions, why does story matter in a world increasingly characterized by climate change, environmental disasters, and technology? How is literature, specifically environmental literature, political? In the spirit of valuing environmental literature we plan to release a supplemental audio file that will specifically focus on the poetic work of the keynote presenters. Watch for this mini-episode on our website, or, if you are a re-subscriber, in your Coherence iTunes feed. Okay, here we go. One of the things that I find so important about this kind of gathering is the sense that... I think that writing in and of itself is a political act, and it's important to think about it in in those terms. Trying to reintegrate those things that have so often been understood separately. Uh, Looking at the environment, um, both from a a spiritual and historical and contemporary perspective. Um, At the same time, I think it has to be in coordination with other acts. First Nations people suddenly found themselves writing in the language of the colonizer. They they were forced to learn English to address land issues, uh, disempowerment. um. What are the different tactics or strategies that people need and how do they coordinate or align or not, you know? Right. Emotional life and somatic life is central to our political life. Uh, Writing by Aboriginal peoples, whether it is focusing on um, land issues, water issues, uh, the environment in general, or um, education, whatever, 
it is it is in a sense a political act because it comes from that tradition. My name is Rita Wong. Uh, my name is Armand Garnet Rufo. I'm Janine McLeod. I'm Molly Wallace. Um, so I, I, I find this a really exciting gathering, and uh, I was very inspired by by all of the speakers this evening. It was wonderful. This has been a, an amazing experience. Uh, so energizing, exactly what a conference should be, which uh, just is witnessing all of these brilliant, energetic uh, people at work and being inspired to be more brilliant and energetic in response. Um, I, I guess the, the the specific topic of the conference came from a number of different sources. Um, I, I have found over the years, um, and this is not uh, a problem that is confined to the Faculty of Environmental Studies, but a, a gradual diminishment of the uh, import, of, of the humanities, uh, the diminishment of funding in the humanities, a, a, a certain lack of understanding of the real contribution that the, that the humanities, literature, history, philosophy make to fields outside. Um, so that you know that this is happening at a societal level. Um, you know there are there are there have been articles about crises in the humanities. You know for 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 a dozen years, um, but it seems to have been particularly acute in um, sort of the interdisciplinary world of environmental studies, uh, in which literature is you know a nice way of communicating environmental ideas, or music is a nice way of tarting up. Um, you know, the really important work that people in the environmental studies do uh, regarding, you know, sustainable energy or environmental policy or economics. Um, and I, 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 you know, per- perhaps particularly because I approach the, um, the humanities as a reformed social scientist, um, all of my degrees are, in, are actually in sociology, um, I have always found that no, no, the it, literature in particular um, offers moments and kinds of illumination that are just not represented by other kinds of disciplines. And over the over the years, I have moved increasingly closer to to literature. I find that there there are ways in which literary texts can encapsulate the complexity um, and particularity of uh, human responses to environmental issues, the emotions uh, attached to environmental issues, the, um, um, the, the ways in which you know, crises of large-scale proportions or issues of large-scale pr- proportions find resonance and purchase and particularity in, in individual people. Um, and there are just ways that that fiction does that better than anything, and there are ways in which, uh, um, on the other side, poetry um, offers different kinds of staging of environmental knowledge that no that no one else can. Um, the 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 activity of reading poetry, um, the activity of engaging in a detailed uh, a detailed criticism of a, of a novel is actually cultivates a kind of of a, a kind of attention that I don't I don't actually think you know sort of reading theory and you know I do theory it's I'm not anti theoretical but that literary attention is actually sort of a cultivated practice that I think is actually important for. Um, Thinking well, thinking slowly, and thinking about um, environmental issues in particular. And I would stress too the critical thinking that literature promotes, the elasticity of thinking that literature promotes, um, its ability not only to um, present environmental knowledge um, in a different form, 
but in a form that requires the reader's active engagement and requires a flexible, more nuanced understanding of the issues um, that are being raised and of the challenges that our day and age actually require of us in terms of the elasticity of our responses. Um, and so I, I, I tend to look at um, what literature can foster and enable in terms of what it requires of readers um, and the ways in which it eschews easy answers to um, really deep and entrenched environmental problems and the way that um, you know, it, can, it can treat time, for example, in novel ways um, that, that allow us to get a deeper understanding of concepts like deep time, which might elude our understanding if we didn't have a way of envisioning them, of grasping them, um, and of understanding their, their import. One of the reasons why we should be focusing on environmental politics um, in, in studying literature, and I'm coming at this from, from the angle of um, a literary major or literature major who um, you know, felt consistently the need to stress why we, wish, why we should be studying environmental issues, uh, is that if we're not talking about environmental issues in the classroom, what are we talking about? Why has this become such a marginalized topic in literary discourse when it looms so large on the horizon in pretty much every other discourse? Why this disconnect? And why this um, suspicion that, you know, that, that literature, that there's nothing that it can do or that um, reading literature only for its environmental um, message or merit is to look for a really reductive form of literature, i.e. it can't possibly be good if it's setting out to um, convince you to change your mind about the way that you act. And so I'm always trying to, um, trying to get people talking in the classroom and in the context of um, you know, conferences and in the, in, in the form of um, writing articles and responding to other people's ideas about why literature matters, um, about what it might be good for in this context, and about how it um, fosters the kind of thinking that we need to bring to the table if we're going to try and address some of the issues that we're facing. Molly Wallace, an assistant professor in the Department of English at Queen's University, gave the closing keynote address. In her talk, Averting Environmental Catastrophe in Time, Speculations on Temporality, Risk, and Representation, she argued that literature offers a more nuanced and complex understanding of time than conventional environmental discourse. Using Burning Vision, a 2002 play by Marie Clements, as an example, Molly traced the multiple ways that nuclear material acts within the environment from the immediate and devastating effects of the atomic bomb to the slow violence of cancer in those exposed to uranium. The arts, she asserts, have a key role to play in helping us to navigate environmental and environmentalist time. Here's Molly. A few weeks ago, I received an email with the subject, subject line, Canada Causes Cancer. This, it turned out, was the latest missive from Avaz, from whom quite a few of us probably received uh, regular messages about pressing global and local human rights and environmental issues. Ordinarily, I just append my name to their petition and post the link to Facebook, feeling at once ridiculously empowered and overwhelmingly helpless in the face of catastrophe. But something in the tagline, Canada Causes Cancer, made me linger a few extra minutes on this one. One is accustomed to hearing that cigarettes say cause cancer, but that Canada itself might be carcinogenic is rather arresting. The topic of the email was actually asbestos, and particularly the mining of this substance in Quebec, and the export of it to elsewhere in the world. 
But the email attached to the subject line, Canada causes cancer, could really have been about any number of carcinogenic substances, from radiation to pesticides and herbicides, from phthalates to BPA to CCA to PCV, and many acronyms in between. Indeed, the saturation of carcinogenic substances in the very landscape, drinking water, and food of Canada might well lead one to believe that living in Canada is hazardous to one's health. Of course, that we live in a sea of carcinogens is hardly news. Indeed, I take that phrase, sea of carcinogens, from Rachel Carson's groundbreaking 1962 book, Silent Spring. And as shocking a statement as that surely was when the book was published, today that sea is only more densely packed. With a crisis this insidiously ongoing, maintaining a sense of immediacy is a continual challenge. Cancer in particular often has such a long latency period that the urgency of preventing carcinogens often has to compete with the protracted time during which cancers may develop. And cause and effect are notoriously difficult to prove. Lighting one's tap water on fire is a wonderfully instant and spectacularly eye-catching result of fracking, though even in this case cause and effect have been contested. But the trickier temporalities and etiologies of cancer, or of birth defects, or of the innumerable suspected consequences of chemical exposure, attention deficit, immune disorders, asthma, constitute what Rob Nixon has called slow violence. As Nixon points out, stories of toxic buildup, mass in greenhouse gases, and accelerated species loss due to ravaged habitats are all cataclysmic but they are scientifically convoluted cataclysms in which casualties are postponed, often for generations. As Nixon usefully points out, the problems here are in part representational. How to devise arresting stories, images, and symbols adequate to the pervasive but elusive violence of delayed effects. My concern here today is precisely with these sorts of temporal questions, questions central to environmental aesthetics fully as much as to environmental politics. Environmentalism is, as we know, a timely concern. Not only is it of our moment, persistent and pressing, but entails thinking about time, past destructions, present contaminations, and of course future perils. Questions of pace and duration of overlapping temporal scales necessarily undergird environmental concerns. What is the rate of environmental change? Which new technologies might already have been causing harm? To what extent should the precautionary principle guide our thinking? How might activists weather the many evenings of grassroots organizing, the limited attention spans of the general public and media, and the protraction of most environmental hazard? And in a context in which techno-scientific expertise so often seems to be the linchpin for environmental destruction and salvation, how can the arts, specifically drama, narrative, poetry, help us to navigate environmental and environmentalist time? Perhaps no environmental concern so challenges us to think on multiple temporal scales as the nuclear. Once, and in many ways still, the paradigm of fast violence, the very epitome of sudden and total earthly catastrophe that was to come in a much-promised thermonuclear war, the violence of the nuclear industry is also glacially slow, as the waste end of the fuel cycle persists for centuries or even millennia. As Peter Van Wyck puts it in his marvelous book, Signs of Danger, Nuclear is a kind of waste that operates in a radically different temporality. It is a material whose toxicity requires a different conception of history and time. If environmental politics is persistently oriented toward the future, we are constantly told, and if you're like me several times a week, to save the planet in time. The nuclear industry is among the least foresightful of toxic producers. Despite decades of discussion on the best way to deal with nuclear waste, most waste today in Canada is still stored on-site at nuclear reactors accumulating in its cooling tanks and awaiting the solutions that the future might bring. And to pick up on my opening theme, the entire fuel cycle causes cancer. 
from the mining of the uranium to the production of weapons or power to the disposal or rather lack of disposal of the waste. Naturally, systems for controlling these substances, the cooling tanks, the cores, the vents, often fail or purposefully or inadvertently leak or off-gas or spill. If we occasionally forget this, if we from time to time are lulled by reminders that accidents are rare and the benefits so salutary, if we are lured by carrots, nuclear energy as a clean and green alternative to fossil fuels, or prodded by sticks, there is no other way to keep the lights on in Ontario. That's a quote I'm sure it's familiar to some. We have surely been alerted by the recent Fukushima disaster that nuclear energy is not benign. A recent national public radio report speculates that the area surrounding the plant at Fukushima will be off limits for the next 20 years, even as children in neighboring areas return to school wearing radiation-detecting badges to ensure that they are not receiving dangerous doses. Burning Vision is set in the 1940s in Port Radium in the Northwest Territories, as well as in the United States and Japan. Its most immediate context is the fast violence associated with the development and use of the first atomic bombs at the close of the Second World War, the uranium for which was mined, as you likely know, in Canada. Alongside this fast violence, Clements also depicts a slower violence at the extraction end of the uranium cycle, um, with miners and ore carriers who gradually succumb to the health effects of radioactivity. Characters on the stage include the real historical brothers Labine, the men who staked the original claim, a Dene ore carrier and his widow, indeed the area is known as the village of widows as a result of the deaths of ore carriers from cancer, a grandmother and grandson from Japan, and an American uh, bomb test dummy named Fat Man, a radium dial painter, two stevedores, a miner, and a Métis baker whose father runs the Hudson's Bay Company store in the area. These characters appear to have been chosen in part because they are at once integrally connected to uranium and relatively isolated in their experience of it. As such, they represent what Beck would call lay people, not the experts responsible for assessing risk, but the recipients of the risky materials who are reliant on experts for the inter er, interpretation of hazard. As Fat Man, the bomb test dummy, puts it, you don't see anybody from the government sitting here. No, they're the ones pushing the buttons, and we're the ones sitting in our living rooms watching the goddamn news. Burning Vision is a difficult play to describe, and I can only imagine to stage. Clements is describing real historical events, but not in a particularly realist fashion, for she disrupts the compasses of time and space that generally guide our experiences of the real. The characters' isolation from each other is emphasized clearly on the stage, for though they often appear simultaneously, they seem especially at the outset to be only dimly aware of each other and of the larger global theater, if you will, in which they all operate. The audience, on the other hand, is privy to the global view, which illuminates the causes and effects that space and time can hide. The play opens with the Labine brothers prospecting for uranium, the stage dark except for their flashlights. As these lights swing around the stage, they illuminate other characters, making them visible to the audience, though not to the prospectors themselves. As the action progresses, the characters become aware first of the objects on stage, those global commodities that tie them all together, and only very gradually do they appreciate the human beings behind them. Time is literally out of joint as characters from various historical moments share the stage. In the process, the play dramatizes relationships among knowledge, expertise, and catastrophic harm, those operations of slow violence that often escape representation, making her staging of that earlier environmental and social catastrophe instructive as we contemplate our present risk society. Burning Vision prevent, presents an attempt to calculate the incalculable, to take seriously prophecies, 
to highlight the consequences of slow violence, a set of tasks for which literature not bound by the realist laws of temporal sequence might be particularly well suited. And of course, the economic priorities of Clemence's prospectors are the kind of perverse calculations with which we environmentalists are very familiar. Even asbestos, a past precautionary failure, seems to require constant recalculation. And uranium mining, along with the other segments of the nuclear fuel cycle, too seems to demand continuously new recalculations of justice and injustice. Indeed, Clemence's seer seems to call us to just this sort of responsibility when he turns from first to second person, asking, can you read the air, the face of the water? Can you look through time and see the future? Can you hear through the walls of the world? Canada causes cancer. But as grandma-turned activist Donna Dillman pointed out in her speech at the Canadian Environmental Network's 2008 conference on health and the environment, it's coming to the point that it doesn't matter anymore where you live on the planet. The air we breathe, the land on which we sit, and the water we drink is threatened. You have to believe in the future no matter what, says Clemence's rose out of an imagined past. And this means calculating the incalculable, whether that represents the hazard of slow violence or the hope of a justice to come. As we perform the repetitive movement that is environmental activism, literary texts and their very iterability might offer a way to sustain energy and attention. One of the things that I think is particularly important about literary conversation is that it actually does demand that we slow down and think in complex ways. And as a result, it, doesn't, uh, it, 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 is, it is cast by you know, sort of more mainstream or apocalyptic environmental, uh, environmentalist discourses as a diversion. I mean that you know there's a huge old political tradition of considering liter- literary texts as a diversion from from real life. Um, there's a wonderful bit in which Kant is particularly upset about women who read novels uh, because it distracts them from you know their their actual you know the actual tasks that they are that that, that they should be doing. Uh, but there's the same there's the same kind of understanding you know that literature is somehow a diversion from the issues from the real issues that damn it demand solutions yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, along with the slow, food, the slow food movement and various other slow movements, literature helps to promote a slow thought movement. Um, there, there, there's a wonderful, wonderful contrast, for example, between the um, um, Jan Martel's uh, list of novels that, Mr. Har- that Stephen Harper should read now, alas, finished, um, on which there are virtually no environmental texts, and uh, the alternatives list of the uh, environmental books that Mr. Harper should read, on which there are no literary texts whatsoever. Um, so I think that that really illustrates the, the sort of disjunct between between the, dis- the two discourses. The other thing I would say about um, literature is that literary objects, literary texts, along with artistic objects, um, you know, art, artworks, particularly public art. Um, also demand public conversation. Um, that that literary texts emerge; they, they really come into fruition not only in our private encounters with them, which are deeply moving and affecting and important, but also in public discussion. Um, and that it is that kind of public discussion that gives rise to um, 
you know, sort of original understandings and uh, contextualized knowledges of what it you know what is what is this world that we are all talking about together, um, rather than assume that the best way of talking is to um, arrive at a solution as quickly as possible, foreclosing other possibilities. The discussion of literary texts actually allows us to have uh, opinions. Um, as, as a teacher, you know, going from teaching from you know teaching theory to teaching fiction, um, it's like night and day. Um, you know, the, the range of people who are actually willing to venture an opinion about a literary text—they might not all be brilliant opinions, but they are willing to say. I, this is what I feel about the text. This is what I think is going on. And this is why I think this is going on. It just enables a different kind of conversation than, you know, what is you know what is the author saying and what is the main point of the article. To read a story and to read a, a, a theoretical piece are very very different kinds of skills. And I think that literary texts open the world to opinions. Um, of course, I'm not alone in that. That would be Hannah Arendt and, and, and Kant, but. Um, literary texts um, and works of art open the world to aesthetic opinions and that that is actually an incredibly part, uh, important part of political conversation. Ask Kate and Ella how their thinking about the importance of eco-poetics for politics was translated into this conference. They told us about the importance of such a conference for the Canadian eco-critical community. I mean, this community is, is a new community, too. Um, when was ELEC founded? 2000, our, our inaugural meetings, or our pre-meetings, were 2006. Okay, yeah. 2006. Mm-hmm. So it's, prior to that, I mean, when I was writing my dissertation, um, there was really a sense that whatever was whatever was happening eco-critically was happening elsewhere, um, probably in the States. Um, and it took a lot of just individual research to locate, you know, Kate mm-hmm. and Pamela Banting, for example, and, um, you know, Laurie Raku, mm-hmm. um, different, you know, instructors in different parts of the country or different professors in different parts of the country who might nurture this community. But we didn't have any critical voice. There certainly weren't any jobs in the field. Don't know if that's changing yet. Um, but there really wasn't a sense that what we were doing, um, you know, ha- had any co- cohesion to it. And so I think having having these conferences, having them on Canadian soil, because we, we began as a chapter of a larger American organization, um, and which is not to say that Green Words, Green Worlds was an ELEC organization. They're separate. But um, we share some of the same community. And having events you know, in Canada that bring together that community, um, I think is really important in terms of, of um, getting some momentum behind what we're, what we're trying to achieve and building a community of like-minded scholars. Mm-hmm. 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 Ella um, uh, also raises an important point that there are different kinds of... Um, 
I mean, the the American mothership organization has a very you know, clear understanding of its own of its own history and its own political trajectory. And actually, Ella um, has. Uh, in, in the collection of eco-criticism that you're mm-hmm. editing, mm-hmm. Um, you've, you've, you've outlined a different kind of literary narrative, mm-hmm. uh, literary, a different kind of historical emergence of the relationship between environmental literature and environmental issues in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, was, this is you know, very much an attempt to um, also recognize that we do have a, you know, a, different, a different way of understanding what it is that we do. Um, so you know there there is a uh, a certain absence of or a relative absence of the you know sort of the white male out in the wilderness mm-hmm. uh, kind of narrative in Canadian literature, which mm-hmm. is the birthplace is exactly the wrong word there, um, which is the, 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 the generative point, seminal moment, there seminal moment um, of uh, you know or understood to be, however mm-hmm. fictitiously understood to be the seminal moment of American ecocriticism. But this 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 particular conference was very much a all right. Uh, here, this is a looking this is a looking outward moment. Um, we you know Alec, the Association for Literature, Environment, and Culture in Canada. Um, don't ask me to say it in French. I always <laughs> always trip. <laughs> um, the uh, uh, Alec. Um, has had you know has had a conference, and there will be another one um, this this coming August in um, uh, Kelowna. At the UBC Okanagan, but this was very much understood as a, a conference with a particular mandate, and that mandate is to imagine uh, literature, li- literary texts looking out. Um, what kind of what kind of world do they reflect? What kind of world do they constitute? Um, what in what kinds of ways do literary acts, poetic, fictional, memoir, storytelling, um, offer uh, different kinds of relations to the world? Um, how are um, different kinds of practices of environmental uh, storytelling, poetics, um, how do they give rise to the expressions of different kinds of relations between um, people and nature, to put it in dualistic terms. Um, so really the, the, the focus was, okay, we're not, we're, 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 we're speaking perhaps, you know, there's always the danger of that instrumentality to which, to which Ella has referred and which texts become conduits for something else. But um, you know, if we're you know respecting r- respecting the particularity of a literary text, what does it offer to um, other kinds of communities uh, or, or or the public with a capital T and a capital P, um, or or by way of constituting a public that other kinds of texts don't? And I think partly as a result, we had a lot of poets um, mm-hmm. at the at, at Green Words, Green Worlds. We chose to emphasize on the Friday night um, three uh, three people who are well known for their poetry, because they are clearly um, constituting different kind not not just discourse, but they're constituting different kinds of um, um, the, the different kinds of of art different articulations of environmental issues, different kinds of emotional worlds, uh, different kinds of ways in which words intervene um, in political relations in different, mm-hmm. in different kinds of ways. Very, very, very self-consciously, I think. On the second day of the Green Words, Green Worlds conference, Adam Dickinson, a poet and associate professor at Brock University, and Anne Milne, a writer and former lecturer at the University of Guelph, presented a collaborative plenary called Carcinogenesis. 
In their back-and-forth exchange of poems, personal reflections, research, and images, they explored the ways in which language, toxins, our bodies, and the environment interact and constitute one another. Here's a sample of their presentation. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit more about how you see your practice um, as a writer and, and, a, and as an educator as well as um, an overtly political um, as, mm-hmm. as overtly political act. Interrogating the boundaries between nature and culture or even between discourses of science and art, I think those are, those are, those are political things to do. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, I, I really see, you know, we, I think we live right now in an age when discourses of truth and falsity are largely determined by scientific discourse. Mm-hmm. And um, so I see the, that there is a role there for art to intervene in that. Um, to um, provide different frames of signification so that we can uh, look at things differently uh, in order to um, raise questions, uh, but also to uh, just, yeah, to, to pro- provide um, textual uh, interventions, which ultimately, I mean, I see, I see my project as combining disparate discourses, not as a means of destroying or undermining those discourses themselves, but showing, first of all, the ways in which they overlap and how this is productive, but also in the ways in which they interrupt each other and the spaces they provide for thinking differently. Polysyndeton is the rhetorical use of conjunctions in close succession, or the repetition of words like and. I see it as an example of a linguistic polymer. Polysyndeton. Make a roof for the people, and the people walk down the street with resin for a roof, and the roof has magnesium in it and sulfur, and the people walk down the street with resin in their hair, and resins are always falling from the sky to the ground, and the birds make a people in the sky, a people of the resin, and the resin is composed of sky, and it composes the sky, and the people walking down the street are the strings of resins, and covering their hair with their arms, with newspapers, with umbrellas, the people are the birds of resins, throwing their landings in the air like people for whom landings are uncommon, like people committed to the expulsion of landings, the resins coming down upon them like people driven out of countries discovered by resins, or that have discovered resins in veins in the countertops of suburbs, and people walk down the street with resins for hair, with countries committed to color, with the bonds between them, the birds circling, and people walking down the street with hunched shoulders so as not to look up and call the resins by name, call the resins in the name of the birds, the people circling and loosening. Non-comedogenic. Almond oil. Me as a child, four times near Perth, Ontario, in a bathing suit. Almost certainly my dad took these photos. Press release, Geneva, 5th of April, 2011, World Meteorological Organization. Depletion of the ozone layer, the shield that protects life on Earth from harmful rays, or harmful levels of ultraviolet rays has reached an unprecedented level over the Arctic this spring because of the continuing presence of ozone-depleting substances in the atmosphere and a very cold winter in the stratosphere. Olive oil. Two unencumbered boys, tenish, whine to their overburdened grandma. Do we have to put sunscreen on? It's not even sunny. The record loss is despite an international agreement which has been very successful in cutting production and consumption of ozone-destroying chemicals. 
Because of the long atmospheric lifetimes of these compounds, it will take several decades before their concentrations are back down to pre-1980 levels, the target agreed to in the 1987 Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete the ozone layer. Evening primrose oil. A man in a full black wetsuit-looking suit, shorts and long sleeves, quickly assembles the collapsible shade structure he bought in Australia. He interacts freely and unselfconsciously with bikini-clad and bare-chested people, romps in the waves, and lies on his side on a towel, his chin propped on his hand. Observations from the ground and from balloons over the Arctic region, as well as from satellites, show that the Arctic region has suffered an ozone column loss of about 40% from the beginning of the winter to late March 2011. The highest ozone loss previously recorded was about 30% over the entire winter. Peanut oil. A family of three digs a hole in the sand and then kneels around it. The dad takes a rat out of his pocket and puts the rat in the hole. The rat digs, runs, jumps, and apparently enjoys herself while the family talks to her and encourages her. Compared with the Antarctic ozone hole that occur occurs every austral spring, the area covered by the Arctic ozone loss, about 2 million square kilometers, was considerably smaller and also more mobile. The area of se severe depletion started immediately over the Arctic region in February and March, then swung over northern Canada, northern Europe, and central Russia to northern Asia. De the depletion persisted well into April 2011. Sunflower oil. Dad! Dad! Hey, Dad! Look at me, Dad! Hey, Dad! Look at me! Look at me, Dad! The movement of the depleted ozone region over populated regions prompted issuances of warnings about excess ultraviolet radiation. Ozone is a dominant factor for ultraviolet radiation exposure levels at the Earth's surface. Thus, the severely depleted ozone led to UV levels that were much higher than normal. The poems in this manuscript, organizing according to the molecular formations of the seven most common plastic resins, enact conceptual translations and formal mutations in order to explore the plasticity of plastics from multiple perspectives. The book is divided into seven sections, each titled according to the numbered resins most commonly produced and indicated on the bottom of most plastic packaging. Polyester, one. Polyethylene, two and four. Polyvinyl chloride, three. Polypropylene, five. Polystyrene, six. And other, seven. The poems in each section reflect research into methods and subjects associated with the molecular distribution of various elements. For example, polystyrene is C8H8. So there are eight poems bearing titles beginning with C and eight beginning with H that explore cultural associations and industrial applications of polystyrene. It's my intention to juxtapose ostensibly distant and differing contexts of behavior and meaning in order to underscore the chains and repeated units of unexpected associations that inform a variety of contemporary cultural practices and assumptions. The repeating structures that lead to plastic molecules are analogous to the repetitions and obsessions, I think, that form the basis of cultural memes, rhetorical forms, and other kinds of linguistic behavior predicated on chain-like dynamics, such as lineups, arguments, etymologies, peer pressure, and, and commercialism, consumerism, to name but a few. This particular polymer 
is composed of the license plate slogans of all 50 states in the United States. It's called hearsay. Rumor has it the out-of-towners drove straight up through the heart of Dixie, then north to the future, to the Grand Canyon in its natural state. The Golden Constitution claims to be the first to celebrate and discover sunshine. All of this makes a Pacific wonderland of aloha, peach to the famous potatoes in their amber waves of grain and big sky dairyland. Given the state of corn, the unbridled spirit is a sportsman's paradise of 10,000 lakes lost in flight over wheat, where iodine is the empire of Native America. It's been said in the land of Lincoln that you've got a friend in beef. The flute player sounds good to me in vacation land while I drive carefully through Great Lakes splendor, buoyed by hospitality that means show me the silver statutes already glistening in enchanted gardens of democratic keystones. The greatest snow on earth is a wild and wonderful lone star stating in full color before the ocean, the green mountains, and the evergreens that the great face of the birthplace of aviation lives free or dies while cars mate methodically in parking lots according to mudflap theories illustrated with unrinsed plates. Octocrylene. My shade umbrella is light blue and white stripes. I bought it on impulse once just before we left to go camping. It was $9.99. The old man was super pissed and called me a princess when I tried to put it in the car. Once my shade umbrella blew, I mean blew away, we were in the water and it lifted off and tumbled down the beach. We saw it happen from the water and flapped our arms around and sort of ran towards it until we realized how silly we looked. Then we kind of slowed down and dragged our legs through the shallower and shallower water. A man grabbed the rolling umbrella and held it for us. I could tell by the way he looked at me when I walked up to retrieve it that he wanted me to be eternally grateful. You know how it is at the beach. But I just thanked him, moved over to where our stuff was, and set it back up again. Better. I've learned to manage it since. Dig it in deeper, don't raise it too high, and if it's really windy, maybe don't put it up at all, or at least take it down when you go in the water. But it still generates family tension, a tension out of proportion to its usefulness to me. It's always a pain, always in the way, always hard to pack, always a fucking thing, something that should be thrown across the driveway or the campsite or the beach. From my perspective, though, it generates shade wherever I put it, and it enables me to spend hours on the beach. I like to dig in and stay for hours. I like the beach. The other day, after chopping wood and sweating for an hour, I slept on the beach under my umbrella with my hat over my face for more than 40 minutes without sunscreen, or with it at least without any more than my usual daily application. I work in 18th century British literature, and I am an eco-critic, but I often feel quite marginal in terms of what other people are working on in eco-criticism. Uh, so I bravely uh, took a step to present some of my creative writing at uh, this conference. So I think that that's mostly what motivated me was that I had uh, presented this creative work in another uh, forum previously and got a really good response. So I just thought that this was another great opportunity for me to present creative work in an environmental studies context. How do you think it went? Um, I think it went pretty well. I, lo I loved collaborating with Adam Dickinson. 
um, that was a decision that we kind of automatically made, even though we don't know each other oh, really? that well. We, um, as soon as we were invited to present together, we really decided that we needed to present together and to really bring out the commonalities between our two um, bodies of work. Uh, the work I presented at the conference um, was personal work about my um, experiences of having skin cancer. And uh, increasingly, I think at first when I uh, began to write about this and actually began to um, get more and more uh, implicated in, uh, you know, as a skin cancer sufferer, I uh, felt very uncomfortable talking to people about the issue, in part because that their response was always, always seemed to suggest that it was my, my fault for being blonde or my, or light skin. Really? And, and uh, that, that I really got the sense that, um, that the conversation was always being shut down in, in some way or that the cancer isn't a serious enough cancer to really be concerned about. So I think that um, I, at first I kind of bought into that and, and felt that it wasn't important for me to really talk about this. But over the last um, probably two or three years, I've actually become increasingly convinced that this is something that I can actually offer in terms of... Um, pushing the discourse around uh, sun damage and skin cancer and uh, the, the relationship to between our harm to the environment and the result, results of that harm mm -hmm. uh, at a really kind of down-to-earth human level. Throughout our interview with Kate and Ella, they stressed the importance of poetic interventions for environmental thought, especially within the academic setting. Ella spoke about how Adam and Anne's presentation embodied exactly this type of eco-critical practice, and why the bringing together of different disciplines was so integral to the Green Words, Green Worlds conference. And what was unique about the conference, too, was the way in which it brought together um, those poetic voices um, and more generally, you know, creative writing with a more academic um, practice, and really brought those um, to discourses into dialogue as witnessed um, by Adam Dickinson and Anne Mills really interesting collaborative piece um, which was in part a poetry reading and a commentary on the process of creating a poetry collection um, and a and a, a, a an academic dialogue that deconstructed popular culture as it related to um, skincare regimes and the threat of skin cancer. And it was a really interesting dynamic and creative interplay of two very diverse disciplines. Um, and that was enacted over the course of the weekend with the various writing workshops, with the public event that was open to the, po to the public poetry event, um, public poetry reading on the Friday night, and then the, the panel presentations on the Saturday. So our aim was to... Um, Yes, you know, have an outreach um, to to reach out to the community, to have an event that was you know open to the public, and um, to sort of bridge the divide between the creation of literature, um, the the discussion of literature, and sort of more more public um, the creation of a more public reading culture.
Because we have so much wonderful recorded material from the conference, we want to make sure that we take our time and do justice to the ideas of those who spoke with us. So, we're going to pause our conversation at this point, but we'll pick right back up here in the second part of this episode. So join us for part two of Poetic Natures, Literature and Politics at the Green Words, Green Worlds Conference. Once again, if you re-subscribe to Coherence, the episode will come right through our iTunes feed to you automatically. If you stream episodes through our webpage, check back for part two next week. Coherence is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment and the Faculty of Environmental Studies at York University. Thanks to Kate Sandilands, Ella Soper, Molly Wallace, Adam Dickinson, Anne Milne, Armand Garnett Rufo, Rita Wong, and Janine McLeod for speaking with us. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes and send us feedback on the show. Music for this episode was provided by Pants Productions. This episode was produced by Andrew Mark and Amanda DiBattista, and the fantastic sound design was done by Andrew Nolan. For details about this episode, check out our show notes at niche-canada.org backslash coherence, and coherence is spelled C-O-H-E-A-R-E-N-C-E.